0: Remember, I had two goals for this course. I want to have, first of all, the wow factor. That is, I want you to come away even more impressed than you already have been with the Word of God and how it is given to us. But I also want this to be a skill-building class. I want to help you to become better readers of the text of God's Word. And so there's some very easy skills and techniques that you can learn that can enhance your reading of God's Word. The challenge that we have is we need to spend our time differently as to what we're looking at. Now, I gave you a homework assignment last week. I wanted you, and we talked about our first impressions principle. That is, when we are introduced to a character, what do we want to look for? What are the three things we want to look for? Come on now. What are the three things we want to look for? What the first things that they say, first things that they do, and then the third one's a little bit trickier, but any physical descriptors that might give us a little bit of clue as to what they're like. So I ask you to look at Abraham. So I wanted you to identify what his first actions were, what his first words were when we first hear him speak in the, in the biblical text. And then, of course, the only physical descriptor that we have about Abraham is his age. We know that he is 75 years of age when we first encounter him in the book of Genesis. But let's talk about his first actions. What was his first action? Yes? He left. He left. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, because I think you'll notice now something even more uh, precise about what is communicated about Abraham's first actions. And I'm actually going to do a little play acting here, all right? Genesis 12. We have the Lord speaking to Abraham, saying, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I show you. So he's been given a command, right? So the first thing we see Abraham do is what? He's going, right? So we see him going. That's the first act. How does that portray him? As a man of action, obedience. So, one of the key traits of Abraham's character is what? He is a man of obedience, of faith. He is the father of faith, isn't he? So, with the first action we see him do is obey, we see him act. But, look at it very closely. It says, Abram left as the Lord had told him. All right, so he's leaving. But what does it say next? Lot went with him. Oh. Now, the first thing we see is his full obedience to going, right? Right? God said, leave your country. Does Abram leave his country? Yes. But what does it say? Leave your people in your father's household. Does Abraham obey that command? He brings Lot with him. Now the text doesn't tell us why Lot goes with him. We have assumptions about that. Why would Abraham want to take Lot with him? Lot was like a son. Remember, Lot is an orphan because his father died. And so we can see Abraham's actions here being very loving. He's a loving uncle, right? But is that what he's called to be, a loving uncle? He's called to what? Faith and obedience, to leave your country, which he does. But what does he do? He takes Lot with him. So one of the things we notice about most biblical characters is we see their very positive trait. But we also tend to get a little foreshadowing of problems that exist. What we might call an Achilles heel, something that's going to trip them up. Does Lot trip Abraham up? We see that story of Abraham engaging with Lot many times. In Abraham's cycle. And most of the time, there's conflict. There's problems. So Lot is damaged goods, as it were. He's baggage with Abraham's obedience. And so Abraham then is going to make choices on behalf of Lot that sometimes are going to be problematic. So we have to look at the text as to how it is being communicated. So Lot went with him. And Lot's going to be a little bit of a drag on Abraham's obedience. So we see that first step, the first image we see is walking, obeying. But then he also has what we might call plan B. Why would he want to take Lot with him? Remember, he has no children. Right? Lot and Sarah are barren. They're infertile he has some possessions you go to a foreign land who's going to take care of you in your old age remember they didn't have nursing homes and hospitals and hospice care and visiting nurses who's going to take care of you in your old age so why would abraham want to take lot with him Younger generation, somebody who can inherit his wealth, somebody who could take care of him, bury him, whatever. And you say, those are all great things, right? But is that what God called Abraham to do? God called Abraham to obey fully. So what is Abraham doing? He often does what we do. He has plan B. He wants to hedge his bets. So he obeys but not always fully. And Lot going with him is, again, we, we read the command. What does it say? Leave your father's household. How much clearer can it get? Oh, he didn't mean Lot. Well, what did he mean then? See, that's how we have to, to look at, we can't just give these characters the benefit of the doubt. We have to look at their actions, because their actions betray their beliefs, just like our actions betray our beliefs. And so Abraham here, we see him as obedient, but there is a little bit of a hiccup in his actions. All right, so that's his actions. We see him as obedient. We see him as a man of faith. but he also And it's also interesting, too, because the first action we want to see is Abraham leaving. And then Lot goes with him. And then it tells us that Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Then look at verse 5. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions that he had accumulated. Now, we have really flashback here, don't we? The first picture we see him is what? Abraham by himself, leaving. The image we have next is Lot's trailing behind. But is that reality? Is that what really happened? No. Abraham, before he left, had to do what? Sarah, get ready. Get all of our possessions all bundled up so that we can leave. And they all leave together. It's not like Abraham goes and then says, oh, I forgot Sarah. I got to go get her. So you see how selective Moses is in making sure the first action we see Abraham doing is what? Obeying the leaving command. Because if we had read the way it really happened, Abraham gathered up all of his household possessions, gathered his wife and his nephew, and left. We would miss, when we miss? We would miss this, the key action of obedience. Because then it would look like he's just doing what anybody else would do. But the author wants to make sure that we see firsthand, our first glimpse is Abraham is a man of faith, a man of obedience. But he also has a tinge where he wants to go his own way, what we call expedience. He acts on his own behalf. So that's his first actions. Very helpful to portray him as a man of obedience, a man of faith, but also one who's going to stumble from here and now about faith issues. But that's a good role model for us too, right? We have great faith. We have trusted in him. But there's sometimes when we hedge our own bets. When we don't fully obey, we partially obey. So, again, he's a good role model for us in this journey we call faith. Now, that's his first actions obedience with a little tinge of plan B in tow. What about his first words? What are the first words that we hear Abram say? The first time, if we're watching this film, the first time we hear Abram speak, what does he say? They were in Egypt, but what does he say? Tell them that you're my sister. Think about it. Here's the man of faith, and what's his first words out of his mouth? It's a lie. He is telling a lie. This is our father of faith. We're all children of Abraham, right? And he first words out of his mouth that we read about is that he tells his wife a fib. Tell them that you're my sister. Just that little bit of glimpse, we said, of Lot went with him, we now see in fuller detail, what? That he is always concerned about expedience, saving his own skin. Now, when you really think about it, this is not very, very nice. Tell them that you're my sister. Why does he say that? He wants to preserve his own life because he feels that if they think that he is married to her, they'll kill him so that she's free to marry an Egyptian, especially the pharaoh. But by saying that you're my sister, he is going to be courted to win the affections of this beautiful woman. So he's going to receive a lot of attention and services and goods to see if he can... Uh, in a sense, give the authorization for Pharaoh to now claim her as his own. Now, when you really think about it, what is he really doing here? Because exactly what he feared would happen, happened, right? They saw that she was beautiful. They took her. Now, Abraham's plan, let's just play it out. Abraham's plan worked. As he said, they took her and he didn't kill him, right? So his plan worked. But did he say to Sarah, let's have lunch every other Wednesday? When she goes into Pharaoh's harem, is he ever going to really see her again? Come on now. No! No! Abraham threw Sarah under the bus. There's no other way you can, you can... You can't sanitize this. He's pimping his wife. That's a shock. He's not going to get her back. Because even the text says what? That Pharaoh took her as his wife. So he is not going to see Sarah again. Why does he throw Sarah under the bus? Who does he have with him? He's got Lot. He thinks that Lot is going to be the heir. The, the promises do not, in his thinking at this point, come through Sarah. They're thinking, he's thinking they come through Lot. So he can jettison Sarah as long as Lot's still around. Because he could probably even blame her, right? Because she hasn't given birth. And oftentimes in the ancient world, if the... Wife didn't bear a child, it was the wife's fault. And so, you have to really think, what is Abraham thinking here? He's basically saying bye-bye to Sarah. He is not thinking that Sarah is going to be the key to the promise. So, don't be shocked. I know it's shocking, but you know what? This is a journey we're on, isn't it? We're on a journey of faith. We get parts of it up front, but there's a lot of cleaning up that has to happen in our lives, isn't there? Where we fully trust, we fully depend. And that's why we have the story of Abraham and the journey of faith. Abraham isn't perfect. Abraham has flaws. But he has, again, a walk with God. That, in the process, we 're going to see him change. now we're not doing a series on Abraham, but you can see how we're track we're going to you'll be able to track then Abraham through Genesis. You see how these first actions and these first words give us a snapshot, a portrait of who Abraham is. He is a man of obedience, a man of faith that is clear, but he also has this problem where he takes matters into his own hand and that's going to get him into some deep water. He's going to do that again when Sarah says, hey, take Hagar. Maybe I can raise offspring through her. And then, of course, Ishmael is the offspring of that. There's going to be times, and even the next chapter, when they get back, and I always ask my students, how do you view Abraham and Lot's separation?" Most people tend to view Abraham and Lot's relationship as a positive one, a loving uncle. And so when they get back, though, what happens? They're squabbling. If Things are so good. Why are they squabbling? They're, they can't get along. Their herdsmen fight all the time. That's not a good picture. Again, God, I don't think, intended for that to happen because Lot shouldn't have been there with him from the get-go. So once again, God is driving Lot out of the picture, But what does Abraham do? Again, we look at it sometimes very positively. He gives Abraham a choice, right? Whatever land you choose, I'll go to another land. If you choose this one, I'll go there. And if you choose there, I'll go here. And you say, wow, that's a magnanimous, loving uncle, right? But let me turn the tables. What if Lot said, I'll take right here. I'll stay right here in this land and not choose Sodom in the well-watered valley of the plain. I'll choose right here. How would you feel about that then? Who did God give the land to? Did he give it to Lot? He gave it to Abraham. Why is Abraham giving what God has given to him? We're seeing the rough edges of Abraham early on. But, take a deep breath. Genesis 22, what's going to happen? We're going to see his faith blossom, but we're not there yet. Early on, obedience, he's got the right material. He's got the right raw material, but it's going to take some processing to where we see him pass the faith test, where he trusts not just in obedience and going to the land, but he's also now going to trust that it's going to be through Isaac through Sarah, that the seed line is going to continue. But early on, he, he, he fails that test. But thankfully, God is in the grace school and patience school and works with Abraham and allows him to stumble along the way until he gets it. Isn't that what the Lord does with us? He allows us to stumble. We get parts of this plan and program, but then we move along slowly sometimes But then hopefully we work it out. That's our journey of faith, just like Abraham's faith. So when we say we're children of Abraham, we really mean that in more ways than just our faith. And so I hope that that's the first impressions that we see is very helpful now. So when you look at a a text of scripture and you're introduced to a character, always analyze the first actions and the first words. Any questions or comments about that? see where this is going it's a different kind of read isn't it because we tend to read the bible with rose-colored glasses because these are the heroes of faith and we tend to think oh if they're heroes of faith everything they do must be faith but that's not the case did david do everything out of faith sleeping with Bathsheba paid a huge price Most of the greats of Scripture stumbled. How does Moses end? Outside the land. Why? You know what the text says? It wasn't because of his anger. The text says in Numbers 20, it's because you did not trust me. You didn't have faith. Faith is the primary ingredient that God wants. Abraham had it. Stumbled with it sometimes, but he had it. And that's the main ingredient that God wants with us. Any other? Yes. Yeah, I mean, certainly just like in our day and age, uh, we ask about is there, you know, customs about when a father would die that somebody in the family would take over. I'm sure that, yeah, another brother. Yeah, I mean, that's what uh, Lot's father died, which is the brother of Abraham. And so, yeah, the traditions would be, the customs would be, that you, the, that orphan would remain in the family. But even the question is, what is the command that was given? The command was, leave your country, which Abraham does, but leave your father's household. Leave your family roots behind. Now, that sounds cruel to us, but that's what God's call to faith was. That's going to become very cruel later on in Genesis 22, isn't it? Kill your son. So God asks some hard things of his children. Now, of course, he's not commanding us to do that, so don't don't think about that. But that's the, that's the, the perspective that we have. All right, let's move on. We're going to talk about another technique. And it goes by various aliases. Parallelism, foreshadowing, I have here intertextuality, or the French call it déjà vu. What does déjà vu mean? Already seen. I've seen this before. Cyclical or parallel type accounts. So now, most people, when they read a book like Genesis... They read in what I call a very linear fashion. What do I mean by that? They start chapter 1, verse 1, and they plow tunnel vision to get to chapter 50. And so they read chapter 1, close the door, read chapter 2, close the door, read chapter 3, close the door, and so on and so forth through the book. They read it like chapters of a book. But you miss out on a lot. If you just read with tunnel vision, I've got to conquer Genesis. I'm in a Bible reading program, I've got to read all 50 chapters, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read five chapters a day, uh, five chapters tomorrow, and in ten days I'm going to get through the book of Genesis. So at the end, you've conquered Genesis. You've read it linearly. And that's good. We all need to do that kind of reading. But what I'm encouraging you to do is what I call rear-view mirror reading. That is, as you're going down the road... Progressing through the content of Genesis, always be looking where? In the rearview mirror, in the side mirrors, to where you've been. How does this connect? How does where you're at now fit with where you've been before? And so the idea here is instead of just reading it linearly, just progressing through chapter after chapter, account after account, what I want you to do is always keep one eye on the rearview mirror. How does this fit with where we've been? And so really, what we're doing is a cyclical type of reading. So I want to expand your reading antenna to when you read a book like Genesis to, how does this account fit with what happened before? So let me see if I can give you some examples. Uh, here's the technique, parallelism, similarity of structure in a pair of series of related words, phrases or clauses intertextuality, where relationships between texts, where it seems like one text is borrowing from another, or foreshadowing clues in a literary work that suggest events that are yet to occur. So these are the types of things we want to look at and where they appear in Genesis. So Let's take a look. The phrasing used to talk of creation, which we looked at uh, last week, in Genesis 1, is repeated in the flood story. So let's show you how that is. So here are some of the statements, the phrases that occur in Genesis 1. The darkness was over the face of the deep. Let the dry land appear. God said to man and woman, be fruitful and multiply. God said, let the land bring out creatures. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the land and rule over the fish of the sea. And at the very end of chapter 1, God said, Behold, I give for food. Alright, so these are phrases that are used in Genesis 1. Now, let me put them side by side with phrases from Noah's flood. Alright, so now we take a look at, The darkness was over the face of the deep. The yellow is Genesis 1. The white is Genesis 7 through 9. The sources of the great deep were broken up. So, the, how did the flood begin? There is a broken, uh, the, the deep is mentioned in both texts. But let the dry land appear. What happened after the, uh, the rain and the floodwaters began to reside, the land began to appear. Just like in Genesis 1, the land now is reappearing after the flood. We have God saying, Be fruitful, multiply. Verbatim, to Noah after the ark, be fruitful and multiply. We have, God said, let the land bring out creatures from the ground. What does God tell Noah? Bring the animals out of the ark. You see similarities between both accounts? Almost verbatim phrases. It gets even more god blessed them and said be fruitful multiply fill the land god blessed noah and said to them be fruitful multiply fill the land rule over the fish of the sea god told male and female and what does he say to noah and among all the fish of the sea they are given and we're going to see the next line for food so what's going on here remember our rear view mirror our side mirrors When we're reading the Genesis flood account, what should we be reflecting on? We should be saying, wow, this is eerily similar to what happened in the creation account. So it's not like we have a situation of God creating the world and man and animals. Close the the loop. Okay, I got it. Now we move on to the next story. God blessed Noah and used him to save the animals and to be the, the one to populate the earth. Different story. No, we're supposed to see them as what? Interconnected. We're to see them together. So really what we're seeing here is Noah portrayed as what? A second Adam. Now, Just to show that there's evidence to back up that claim, let's look at what the text says. What does the text say? Well, our first impressions. Open to Genesis 5. Remember, we said we want to look at a the first things that are said about a character. What's the first thing said about Noah? Let's turn to Genesis 5. The first things that are said about Noah, he's mentioned in a genealogical list. And what does it say? Beginning at verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah. So here's our first entrance to Noah. So what does the author tell us about Noah? We want to look at that, right? What does it say? He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So Lamech, in a sense gives a little bit of what we might even call a prophetic poetic statement there's a lot of hope riding on noah he is going to bring comfort to what the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the lord has cursed there's three words in there that are verbatim used in the cursing account in genesis 3 what are they toil curse and ground the first thing we see about Noah is he is very connected to Adam. We don't hear about his dress. We don't hear about anything else. We hear this statement that deeply connects him to the Adam and the curse. He's going to reverse the curse, right? He's going to bring comfort. We've been toiling. We've been cursed. He is going to bring comfort. So, Noah is expected now to do what? To kind of be the one, the transformative change agent that's going to bring comfort to our cursed world. He is now our new hope. Everything can look to him as the one who can be a beacon to get us out from underneath this curse. So, lots riding on Noah. He is now to be seen as a second Adam. What else happens? Well, Noah receives all the animals. What was God telling man to do when man was first created? I want you to name the animals. What did he say in chapter 1? I want you to have dominion over the earth. So Adam exercised dominion over the earth and over the animals by naming them. Well, what does Noah do? Noah has a relationship with the animals just like Adam had a relationship with the animals, right? What did he do? He didn't name them because Adam already done that. But what does he do? He saves them by bringing them onto the ark. So he is a new Adam in terms of the relationship to the animal world. Both are commissioned, as we saw earlier, to be fruitful and multiply. Same verbatim command. So it's like Adam, like Noah be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We also have, both are giving regulations regarding their diet. And here's where it gets a little interesting. What was Adam told? You can eat every seed-bearing plant and tree. And then from all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, except, except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now what were the dietary instructions given to Noah. Noah, anything that moves upon the earth you may eat. So if you want to eat crickets, go ahead. If you want to eat eels, go ahead. If you want to eat lobster, go ahead. Amen to that. Anything that moves is edible. But what? One exception. What's the exception? No blood. So, what's happened? The same dietary instructions. All you can eat, Adam and Eve, but one restriction. Noah, all you can eat, one restriction. You see the similarity between Adam and Noah? We are meant then, as readers, to see Noah as a second Adam. But what does that prove? What is the whole purpose? Why do we have the similarity? Why would the author of Genesis want us to see connections between these two individuals? Is he running out of plot lines already in the first book where he needs to, in a sense, reuse? What is the purpose for the connection between Noah and Adam? What does this do in terms of the theme of why this book even is for us? Well, some of these things are pretty obvious. We're seeing what? We're seeing the fact that we have uh, all these verbatim, almost repeating of these phrases and concepts, no is to be seen, and really here's the point. The flood is to really be seen as a creation makeover. How does Genesis 1 start? There was this watery surface upon the earth. And then God works. What happens with Noah? A flood comes. What happens? There is a watery surface over the earth. Why did that happen? Genesis 6 tells us that, what? The sin and the violence of man had become so much, so corrupt, that he had to start over. So we needed a new Adam to be the one to recreate or to repopulate the earth. So the flood story is seen as a creation do-over. So we bring the world as it were as it were to the original state in which we found it in Genesis 1, which is with this watery mass. And then we start over again. And that's where it gets interesting too. What was happening in Genesis 1? The spirit of God was hovering over the waters? What does Genesis tell us about the flood? That the ruach, the spirit, it's actually wind, but wind and spirit are the same Hebrew word. It says the wind was drying the waters to where the dry land appeared. So again, very similar terms used in both accounts. So that we are meant with our side view and our rear view mirrors to, to read the Noah account as a new creation. So we can't just read linear anymore. We have to say, how is this cyclical? How does this relate to what we've seen before? Yes. Um, yes. 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 So been... Yep. Yeah, I mean, the Noah uh, birth account, where he's going to bring comfort to our toil. I was going to save it for later about word studies uh, and word play. The word for Noah, you can kind of hear it, is N-H, Noach. That's the Hebrew word. The thing that is operative about Noah is Noah found blank in the eyes of the Lord. What is it? Found favor or grace. The word for favor or grace is Hain. Reverse the letters. H-N and N-H. And what do you have? Noach or Hain which is the word for favor. So there's a word play on Noah being grace or favor. So these texts do this all the time. And that's what, uh, why you're here, is to show the wow factor, is that these texts are literally rich. Yes, we can read them for content, but the setting of these words is amazing. And how much thought, how much effort, how much structure, how much design is put forth in the words that we have. So it's not, it's, we understand the Bible is a very revered book. But the Bible is also a very, very, very well written book. And we expect to, who's the author? We expect him to put all the tools of the trade into his book. Because he's a God of order, a God of design, a God of beauty. Everywhere we look in the created world, what do we see? Beauty. Everywhere we look in the created word, what do we see? Beauty, structure, design. So God's not going to change his character to just give us data. He just doesn't dump data on us. He gives us data that's been very well crafted and honed. Yes. Great, astute question. The question is, if we have all these literary characteristics, does that show that this is made-up stories and we're just meant to take away lessons, but it's not true history? Uh, Some take it that way. Uh, I take it to mean that, no, God is just crafting what literally happened, the historical events, but he's portraying it and stating it in such a way that it also is aesthetically pleasing and and artfully uh intricate. So just because we use art doesn't mean that it isn't true. So I think that's the that's what I want you to walk away with. All right? Yes. You can use the microphone. It's so. one of the great courses. Right. And the teacher is Amy Jill Levine. And right, she's yes. she's giving me the impression that these are probably stories to right. to um, implement what God wants us to do or to indicate what God wants us I've to do. I've listened to that series. And there's some great I, insights. I believe it's history, and I just... Right. No, I do too. But the, the, the question is, uh, because of the fact that the Bible is great literature, people then just say, well, that's fiction. And uh, one uh, many uh, scholars today who are not even Christian. There's one Jewish scholar, uh, Robert Alter. He's a literary genius. I enjoy reading what he has to say about the Bible immensely. But he believes the Bible to be historized fiction. That is, he believes it to be made-up stories. There may be a kernel of truth in these accounts, but he says it's just artfully told stories. You know, yarn spun over generations that we are now reading. But I certainly want to push back on that and say no, what we have is history it's just that this history is also aesthetically, artistically given to us. So it's both true and art. So, yes? We have to remember that the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right, right. So you would expect that if the Spirit of God is involved in this, that it's not just going to be or any old thing. That it's going to reflect the author. And what do we know about God? Is he a God of beauty? Yes. Is he a God of order? Yes. Is he a God of structure? Yes. So the expectation, I think, would be, if that's the way the author is, that's what the product of the author would be. And so I think that's, I want to release that tension right away. Now, here's some other tie-ins, and I want to belabor that, but just to show we can go on and on with all the connections. Fall takes place in a newly created world. What happens? Noah has a fall just like Adam has a fall. Noah becomes the father of the human race post-flood. Adam is the father of the human race pre-flood. Noah is literally said to be a man of the ground. We saw that in Genesis 5 and then in Genesis 9. Adam is derived from the ground. We have Noah as a tiller of the ground. Adam is cursed to be a tiller of the ground. Noah has three sons. Adam has three sons. Partaking of the vintage to excess. What trips Noah up? He gets drunk from the fruit of the vine. Fruit. What trips Adam and Eve up? Fruit. So both have a fall with fruit oh boy so here's the problem Noah is seen to be a new Adam and our hope and our expectation is that he's going to be different this time around but our hopes are dashed why? because he's just like Adam Adam fell Noah fell Adam was cursed. Noah curses. Cursed be Canaan. You see, all these connections, we have to read with this rearview mirror. We are to view Noah through the lens of Adam. And that's how God portrays him in the book of Genesis. So we can't just close the door on Adam and Eve and creation and then move to, oh, let's go to the next story. And it's totally separate from the first story. No, there's this cyclical type of thing. So these stories are connected. Again, Noah awakes from his wine and knows. What happens after Adam eats? He knows that he is naked. Partaking of the fruit led to uncovering of Noah's nakedness. The same thing, they knew that they were naked. So again, the nakedness is also present. Yes? We could add a third column there and call it Christ, couldn't we? Yes. There's uh, there's a lot of illusions as well. That's right. And that's why Christ had to come. Because Christ is the... Notice, and this is a little, little distinction. Christ is not called the second Adam. What is he called in the New Testament? We already have a second Adam. That was Noah. What is Christ called? Yes. Okay. In the New Testament, Christ is called the last Adam. A little different than second Adam, right? Second Adam, we have had second Adam. But we haven't had the last Adam, the one to overrule and overturn all that the other previous Adams, including us, have messed up. So now that's where we could add that third column. Yes, a question. Well, that's the thing. That's not what the author of Genesis is concerned about. Did Adam and Eve have other children besides Cain, Abel, and Seth? Yes, they had to have. But that's not pertinent to what we need to know about. And again, that whole thing, where did Cain get his wife? Again, historical account, he had to marry a sister. It's the only choice. But that's not we don't get that de- details. The Bible doesn't answer our questions. The Bible has an agenda. And it's not our agenda. What it's funny, when we come to Genesis, we have all sorts of questions. Where did dinosaurs fit in? When did the angels fall? Where did Adam and Eve have a belly button? I mean, these are the kind of questions that are asked. The text does not answer those questions. There wasn't a- In creation, the the assumption or the theory is the family of Noah grew out of a bunch of intermarrying family. family. Right. Right. And I mean, in a sense, uh, the genetic line starts over again. Uh, Actually, not as much through Noah, yes, but through Noah's wife. And she's unnamed. Because she is really the only connection. with, because uh, her genes are then, of course, passed on to all of the. That's why sometimes you hear people talk about a uh, uh, a mother Eve. You know the, and so there's there's genetic kind of studies, but again, that's that's not really what uh, I want to talk about. In chapter, five. chapter five and verse. Had... So yeah, so we're getting to after Adam lived eight hundred years, he had other sons and daughters. Yeah. Yeah, so it does mention it, but we don't have their names. So we don't, they're not pertinent to that. Uh, And uh, Noah may have had other offspring as well, but uh, we do kind of get the impression that Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the only ones there. So these are the things that clearly show us that we are meant to read Noah in light of Adam. All right? So now, why is there such similarity? Well... The world depicted by these narratives has the same divine design and author. So he clearly wants us to get the point. What is that point? Well, these show that a major aspect is there is order, there's structure, there's cycles to life. How many of you are grateful that the sun rose this morning? There's a season, a cycle to life. We're enjoying now the warm weather. Wasn't yesterday gorgeous? We're enjoying the seasons of life. There's a cycle to life. There's a cycle to to even narratives within the book. So again, these are the things that are embedded in these things. So our God is a God of design, of order, of structure. So I think that's one reason why we have that. And we'll get to another reason. Why is there repetition? Again, resonates the structure of life that we see all around us. Why is there uh, this similarity? We have the routinization of events. That's why we can take heart from these stories and see, in a sense, paradigmatically, our own lives through these characters' lives. Like Abraham, we should see our journey of faith. Ups and downs. Abraham had his ups and downs. So we should take heart and take courage and hope that God is patiently working with us on our journey of faith, just like he did with Abraham, our first one. And then... We also have to remember, too, originally, these stories were given orally and received through the ear. We have the advantage of having literary texts where we can read. We can read newspapers. We can read books. We can uh, read journals and diaries and all that. They didn't have that back then. So all these stories primarily were communicated in an oral way. So a main way that a speaker, a storyteller... A narrator could make sure that you get the point is to use the same words and phrases to make sure that you saw those connections. It's just that we read differently today because of our uh, way that we read current literature. We don't read like this with an oral kind of perspective. So one of the things I always encourage people to do is listen to the Bible audibly. It will help you to ask new questions of the text because when we read in print we don't get to hear inflection so when God after Adam and Eve fell says to Adam and Eve three words where are you what's the inflection of God's voice in that we don't know because we just read it in a literal linear uh, word only but if we heard it with our ears It could be, where are you? Right? Or it could be, where are you? Two different stances, right? How do you view God? The words are the same, but the tone is different. So, in an oral rendering, those kind of intonations give you glimpses into that. Now, of course, we don't know what that uh, originally would be but at least it gets you thinking and more deeper questions all right let's do another quick deja vu we saw the similarity between adam and noah well let's look at the similarity between abram and the nation of israel adam went down to egypt what happened at the end of genesis 10 of joseph's brothers went down what did they do they sojourned there just like Abram did in chapter 12. The famine was severe in the land. What was happening at the end? There was a famine that was severe in the land of Canaan. They will kill me and let you live. That's why Adam said to Sarah, lie. Tell them that you're my sister. What? If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. We're now moving into the Exodus story of Exodus chapter one, where there's concern about death and murder. Uh, Abraham lies about Sarah. The midwives lie about the births. That I may remain alive, it was the save life that God sent me ahead. That's what uh, the Joseph said. Abram entered Egypt. These are the names who came to Egypt. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh with mighty afflictions. In Genesis 12. "I will bring one more affliction upon Pharaoh. Pharaoh sent for Abram. Pharaoh sent for Moses to take her and be gone, take and be gone. They sent him off with his wife. Pharaoh sent the people off. Abram was very rich in cattle, silver and gold. What happened when the Israelites left Egypt? They had gold, silver, and animals, livestock. As Abraham went down, the nation goes down. And, as somebody mentioned the third column, Jesus goes down. What happens after the birth of Jesus? He has to make a trek down to Egypt. Everybody's got to touch Egypt. That's a cyclical kind of story. So out of Egypt, I've called my son. So again, these patterns are prevalent throughout these books like Genesis. Now, another, sometimes people call this Alpha Omega. Not only does this happen in text within the same book, but it also happens across texts. Let me give you some examples. Here we have some events that happened in the Old Testament. The confusion of tongues. We'll look at that account later in this series the Tower of Babel. We have Pharaoh seeking to kill Jewish boys in Egypt. We have the miraculous feeding of a nation in a secluded place where the nation of Israel is fed manna. We have Moses on a mountain coming down with a shining face, and he has to wear a veil. Well, let's jump Testaments. What happens in the New Testament? We have a confusion of tongues event, don't we? We call it Pentecost. It's actually a reversal of Babel, isn't it? Where now everybody can understand in their own language. Where in the Tower of Babel incident, people were speaking and they couldn't understand each other. What happens, is there a situation where Jewish boys are sought to be killed in the New Testament? How about in the Christmas account? What happens? Herod wants to kill all the Jewish boys under two years of age in Bethlehem. Just like Pharaoh wanted to kill all the Jewish boys in Egypt. We have, how about the miraculous feeding of a nation in the wilderness? What does Jesus do on multiple occasions? He feeds the people with loaves and fishes. He's providing food that supernaturally comes. And then, do we have a mountain and a shining face kind of scene in the New Testament? We call this the transfiguration. So what's going on here? Not only do we have cyclical in-text kind of parallels. We haven't had cross-text parallels. But are you about to be wowed some more? Let's see what happens when we compare the first four chapters of Genesis with the last four chapters of Revelation. So let's take a look. God creates the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. God creates new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21.1. Darkness and night are created. What does the author of Revelation, John, say? There's no darkness. There's no night. A clear connection, allusion to Genesis. Waters are gathered in the seas. Again, negative. No more water. It's not like the original one. So we state what's not there. That's kind of unusual. Unless you want to draw a comparison to what was original. God made the sun and the moon. There's no need of the sun or the moon. God's first home was by rivers. Man's eternal home is going to be by a river that flows from the throne. Death for eating from a tree. Instead of death this time, what's going to happen? We're going to get life from eating from this tree that's along this stream. There is the marriage of Adam. There is the marriage of the Lamb. There is Eve, the wife of Adam. There's New Jerusalem, the wife of Christ. There is the serpent deceives, the serpent is banned from deceiving. Satan's first attack on man, Satan's final attack. A garden which becomes defiled, a city that cannot be defiled. The initial triumph of the serpent, and the ultimate triumph of the lamb. Animal imagery. Savior's first coming promised, it's going to be the seed of the woman. The Savior's second coming promised, lo, I come quickly. Pain greatly multiplied, there's no more mourning, crying, or pain. Curse on man and nature, there's going to be no more curse. Uh, again, on and on and on. And how many slides I have of this? First sacrificial lamb, last sacrificial lamb. Angel keeps people from the garden, angel welcomes people to the garden. Man's driven from God's presence, believers shall see his face. We shall see him face to face. The tree of life is taken, the tree of life is open. God's mark on Cain... Guess what? We receive a new mark, every one of us, that identifies us as belonging to him. What's going on? The Bible is full of these deja vu. I've read this before. So it wants you to make these connections. What's the so what with Adam and Noah? We see God as gracious. He's willing to do what we call a do-over. How many of you are golfers? You're excited when you get to do a mulligan, right? A do-over. Well, that's what happens with Noah. He's a do-over. We get a second chance. Our God is the God of second chances. And he's willing to give a fresh start. To just show that he's more than gracious in giving man, humanity, an opportunity to do right. But sadly, what happens we're just still like adam adam's blood still courses through our veins and we go our own way so what would we need why do we have missions week why do we have evangelism is because we need to proclaim there is a way a different way and that way is through jesus christ and so We see the pattern of our style over and over and over again. We mess up continuously. But God has a plan and program that's different from the way we operate. Because he invades history, sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins. So why do we have these intertextual things? It's because God is a God of grace. And he wants to see that he's very patient with us. But as we read these texts, it doesn't state it, obviously, or overtly, but it's covertly. We are to see God's wonderful love for us, and that he's patient and very kind and generous in many different ways towards us, his creation. And so we can bless him for that, and we can worship him for giving us creative words. Now, I want to give you a homework assignment for next week. I gave you one last week. I'm going to give you one this week. This is going to be a little odd, but I think you can do it because it's not going to be on the surface level. It's not going to be clear why I'm asking you to do this, but we'll talk about it next week. I want you to look for comparisons between Noah and Lot. Lot and Noah are to be compared. I'd never would have thought of that. Well, that's why you're here. Because there are connections. What's a connection? I'll give you one, and then I'll set you out to hunt for more. There's two people in Genesis that get drunk. Who are they? Noah and Lot. So there's a connection. They're the only people that get drunk in the book of Genesis. So that's one connection. But I want you to look for more. There's plenty of connections between Noah and Lot. And But I want you to, first of all, identify them, and then think about why those connections are. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to see your word in a new way through the artistic, literary beauty that it is. As we saw how characterization happens last week, how we see that there are cycles, there's repeating of themes and concepts so that we draw comparisons between these accounts and between these individuals help us to hone our skills as we read these texts so that we might better understand what you intend to communicate to us through these texts thank you for these men and women and for their desire to learn and grow and i trust that this series of classes will motivate them and encourage them drive them to spend more time in your word and that this will be more fruitful and more productive as they just even a few different skills into their reading of your word thank you for the missionaries that are here this week and we pray a blessing upon them but most of all we give you praise for taking the time to communicate to us these beautiful words but also father uh, may we acknowledge that you are very patient and gracious with us as we continue on this journey of faith for this we pray in jesus name amen Thank you. Amen.